You have clicked your way to Behind the Buzz, a Public Fit Theatre Company's occasional podcast discussing the myriad details that make up the production of our season of plays and staged readings. This is episode number five of season number two, and today we'll be talking about our upcoming staged reading of Diana's son's Stop Kiss. I'm Joe Kukin, producing director here at APF, and luckily I'm joined by artistic director Anne-Marie Preff. Hello. And today we'll be talking with uh, Stop Kiss director Kimberly Mellon, along with cast members Adriana Chavez and returning champion Gabriel Silveroli. But first, a quick word about spoilers. Uh, it's not strictly a mystery, but there are some elements of Stop Kiss that audiences may want to be surprised by. Uh, and here at Behind the Buzz, since we tend to really get into the specifics of these plays, I want to remind everybody that we're almost certainly going to be discussing some potential spoilers. So if you want to remain blissfully ignorant of each and every Stop Kiss plot point, maybe join us for the reading at the Flamingo Library on Friday, March 25th at 7 o'clock, and then maybe click back here and, and dig a little deeper uh, by listening to this interview. Whatever you want, you're calling out the boss of you. But we're going to start, as we often do, by talking about the play in broad strokes, what it's about and and why it's found its way into our season. So, A.M., what's Stop Kiss about? Well, for me, Stop Kiss is actually about a beautiful relationship between two women. That's that's what's most interesting to me about the play is what's not being said in their relationship um, until it culminates to this really horrible event uh, um, in, in the story. But what I think is most beautiful about uh, this story is what's not being said, the language in this play. Her dialogue is, is pretty great. It is. She... Um, her use of punctuation, her use of dashes, um, all of those things lead to this very inelegant way of speaking, which speaks to uh, the awkwardness and the romance of their relationship. And, and, that, and that's what I love most about this play. Let me interest, because I feel like we're going to jump right in and, and that we need to probably talk less and, and get our, our three guests here. Let me introduce our, our panel today. Kimberly Mellon, the director of this stage reading, is an assistant professor of acting out at UNLV Department of Theater Arts, coming here by way of professorships at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater, the theater school at DePaul University, and BYU, which I believe they still keep in, in Provo. As an actor, she's worked in film, commercials, industrials, voiceovers, and, and spent a number of seasons at the Utah Shakespeare Festival. She's directed at Sundance Summer Theater, Hale Orem Center Theater, Okeechobee Summer Theater, and acted all over the country pretty much with Timeline Theater, American Blues Theater, Writers Theater, Court Theater. I'm going to say theater a lot today. Steppenwolf Theater, <laughs> Northlight Theater, Chicago Shakespeare Theater, and, and the list, I mean, it really does go on and, and, and on. Uh, she received her MA in Arts Management from Southern Utah University and her MFA in Acting from the Theater School at DePaul University, as well as a BFA in Music, Dance, Theater from BYU. We're very proud to have her join us as a part of this year's season at APF. Did, did, is all that true, Kimberly? Did I make any of that I'm going to say yes, because okay. it's on paper. <laughs> okay, Therefore, good. it is true. <laughs> I'm going to introduce our, our other two. Uh, I'm going to say theater a lot again, because we've got Adriana Chavez here. She's an actor, creator, director, and a visual artist. You would probably identify yourself as a visual artist first in that list, wouldn't you, Adriana? Is that no. No, you wouldn't. No, okay. I am all those things at once. They are on, oh, yeah. on the scale. They all equal and balance yes. out. Uh, well, you co-founded the Movement Inc. 
incubator. She's launching uh, El Hoyo de Agua Theater Project. El Ojo de Agua. Thank you. God, <laughs> yes, I'm white. Yes, Performance Collective. Okay. Uh, Things have changed and since what, you looked at my bio. <laughs> perform- oh, you've changed the name. Say it again. Yes. El Ojo de Agua Performance Collective. And that is a company geared towards Latinx and queer theater makers. Is that still true? Um. That's also kind of changed. Probably it will still be geared towards Latinx uh, performance uh, makers, uh, but like devised theater kind of thing. Cool. It sounds yeah. like it's in, in evolution right now. As it we is speak. in evolution. Cool. It, it was um, it was on a break yeah. you know, due to the pandemic and many other personal things going on in my life. Sure. But, and now it's starting to reemerge. Pandemic. And, never heard yes. of it. Well, let yeah. me finish with you because you, uh, our folks may have seen her work as uh, the director of APF's stage reading of The Ghosts of Lote Bravo back in uh, 2019 before everything Turned to shit. Uh, she co-produced and co-directed the Las Vegas chapter of the nationwide reading of It Can't Happen Here and was the co-creator of Small Space Fests. Um, I remember that being a sort of multimedia performance textile art gathering here downtown. Yeah, it was. Yes, it, it incorporated all the arts, including performance yeah yeah i went a couple of times uh you received your mfa in ensemble i'm telling you like you don't know where it okay i'll talk to you guys she received her mfa in ensemble based physical theater from del arte international she's performed on both coasts and a bunch of stations in between homunculus mask theater uh palmissimo dance uh and collective opera company in new york city um naked empire is that buffon or yes uh-huh. naked empire buffon company and del art company out in california uh Shakespeare and Company in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. I'm not making any of this stuff up. This is all true. No, that's all true. Locally, you've performed with Miel Wolf, The Lab, LV, and Majestic Rip, and you can currently catch her as a performance community liaison with Miel Wolf not at Area 15. Nope, You no cannot more. currently catch her as a performance community liaison. <laughs> no, things have changed. Things so have changed. many things in so evolution with you. So many things have you. changed in these last two years. Oh, yes. I really should check these bios before I just read them into the microphone. But okay, Gabrielle, let's see how much of you I get right. <laughs> Returning champion Gabrielle Civeroli is back after irritating a public fit audiences in this season's stage reading of Gloria. Yes. That seems fair. Yeah. She's a graduate of UNLV stage and screen acting program. Uh, you may have seen her out there in Legally Blonde or Julius Caesar or over at Bally's uh, in Tony and Tina's wedding. Uh, Gabby returns for her second Behind the Buzz conversation. I got most of that right. Yeah, that's all accurate. Okay. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> Let's I want to, let's jump right in. Amber was talking about the language, uh, the relationship. When I first read uh, "Stop Kiss," I'm going to direct this to you, Kimberly. Mm-hmm. There was a, a a sort of mystery element about it as well. It's not strictly a detective story, but it felt to me like there was a little bit of a mystery about the the play. And not, I'm saying that I'm not saying that was its main spine, but it did feel to me like there was some sense of. Uh, not a whodunit, but a, just a mystery of what was going on. Is yeah, that- not so much a whodunit, but oh, what happened? Who did it? Who? No, what did happen? Yeah, that's what I mean. Not whodunit, but what did happen? Yeah. Um. So you you said at the beginning that we're just going to give away spoiler alerts, and that's also <clears throat> excuse me, actually quite essential for. I think discussing the brilliance of this script, because by the second scene, again, spoiler alert, you know what happened. Basically, it's referenced. So if if you haven't if you haven't read the script before, it's um, a timeline that goes from our two central characters meeting 
up till the time of, I'll call it the incident. And then simultaneously on every other scene, every odd numbered scene, it's going in reverse order. So you, it is not a clear chronology of time. It's not a clear chronology of the lived characters' lives. And so you see the buildup and then simultaneously every other scene, you see the denouement and there's <clears throat> 12 scenes of each. And so what's, what you don't learn until the very last scene of the play is what the watershed moment was. Right. And I've never read anything with that structural element before. Well, the specific plot points were a mystery too, but I think for me, uh, there was something mysterious too about the relationship of the two women. Oh yeah, it's treated, definitely. It's treated like a mystery. I don't think they really know who they are to each other and the discovery mm -hmm. that they make. Now this, this place 23 years old. And at the time, you know, I think there was a, a certain, um, uh, I don't know, uniqueness of dealing with lesbian characters in, in this way. Now it's almost prosaic. It's it's less it, it's less um shocking. Is that fair? Yeah, I I well, I mean, I I think it's less shocking now, but yeah, like back in the nineties, like I think it was kind of taboo a little bit. I mean, I think females like female lovers were kind of more accepted than like like male lovers that I, I feel like that was a little more rejected and um but but I also think in the 90s like it just like like it wasn't as like in the mainstream media as it is now and you know what I think is interesting because the play takes place in New York mm -hmm. so you would think because uh, New York is like a metropolitan city there's a lot of diversity there's a lot of representation in that city that it would be less taboo in New York but even as the, the two characters are discovering their relationship, they, uh, uh, especially for the Callie character, she has some shame in, in revealing her attraction to this other person or has some shame of being attached to the event where this brutal attack happened. And, and I, I don't remember what it was like 23 years ago because I'm living now, but that reveals it's kind of like a timestamp of where our head head was at. Can which, you just? Uh, Emily brought up the characters' names. Can you, Adriana and Gabby? Do you mind just telling us who you play and kind of giving us a summation of those characters, real quick? A summation—that's a bad word—but just talk about the characters a little bit. Adriana, why don't you start? Yeah. Okay. I play Callie Pax. Um, she. Oh gosh, this is where like I'm like, what do I say? Um, she. Um, <laughs> She has lived in New York for a while. Um, we we have said she's kind of a swerver. Um, she like I you know like I find that she is not on like the life path that she wants to be. Like she's like not like things have been um, kind of given to her with her, without her having to have like fought for anything. Like I think that's how she's lived most of her life. Um, just things being handed to her where she just, she hasn't had to like really work hard for things. She was like given her, her apartment. She was like her guidance counselor wrote her, her, um, her application to NYU. Um, uh, she hasn't, you know, she wasn't much of like a, like a, um, a sports person. She's kind of clumsy. Um, her job. Yeah. Her, her job was given to her, you know? So, so she's, She's not much of a fighter. So I think in this play, she's kind of like learning to fight and learning like what her, 
her path is. And I think that that is, is finally introduced by this new person that comes into her life. Um, Cause she's like had the same friends since college for like this whole long time. And they are um, like kind of codependent, I think. And um, so like, she hasn't like really learned much about who she is. And so, but now finally she is because of what this person has introduced. So that's like kind of what I see. And and this new person is. This new person is Sarah, who is from St. Louis. So she has just left St. Louis, just broke up with her long-term boyfriend, Peter, after like seven years and, or in my brain anyways, and moved back in with her parents and then said, I'm out of here. I'm going to New York. And I think for Sarah, she's in a place of her life where she's outgrown her small town and she's ready to see what the world has to offer. I think for Sarah, she's lived a very comfortable and cushy life and she references it a lot. I go to my parents' house on the weekends and, you know, it's just St. Louis is a small city and she's ready for something else. And for Sarah, she's just in this part of her journey where she's really coming into herself and she's like, who am I? What do I want and how do I get it? Uh, I think another important character trait, she's a teacher. Uh, She's a teacher in the Bronx. Uh, She was teaching at a private school in St. Louis and she knows that she can make more of an impact on the world by going somewhere else. So she's ready to see what she's made made out of. You know, I, I use I use an unfortunate word uh, a couple of minutes ago. I said prosaic, and I and I I think that in as theater folk, I think we have a, um, an attitude towards the queer and LGBT community that may not be shared, you know, universally. And we just sort of assume that that our you know right way of thinking is. Universal, but then I look at the you know our, our own history. Like I say, this place twenty three years old, but even now the evolution of attitudes towards that community has have changed. Certainly, um, you know, marriage equality was voted in New York in two thousand eleven, and it finally became the national uh, national law in two thousand fifteen. So that sort of level of national acceptance was codified then, but. Yeah, you're shrugging, Kimberly, because you're you're thinking what I'm thinking is that that might not really matter. Yeah, I don't think it matters at all. I mean, national acceptance and even the passage of legislation to ostensibly say, you know, this persecution is no longer allowed and equal these equal rights are required. It it doesn't change everybody's day to day lives and interaction. And you talked about the shock of um, a queer relationship on stage. Uh, I think it's still a shock to every individual life that is navigating their sexual orientation and their gender identity. That process is always going to be, uh, not always, I would hope it would be less um, full of turmoil, but I think it's a very difficult passage for anybody that's going through that. And I don't think if a play... I don't know. I always look at these fictional characters. They become so real to me. They just yeah. feel like other friends. Yeah. So if I if I knew women that were going through this in 1998, and if I knew them now as what they'd be, 50 somethings. Do you know? I don't think that uh, daughters of these women would have any less of a complicated journey towards um, claiming, seizing, acting upon their gender identity or their sexual orientation than their moms had. <laughs> well, what do you say to the people? Because there's a difference between t- telling the story of people discovering those qualities in themselves and having, going through, you use the word turmoil, going through the turmoil of of identi- coming to terms with their identities and the people who are on the complete other side of the fence who view these in so- almost a voyeuristic way as if it were oh, those yeah. others, those people, that type uh. of folk. And, and 
we want to talk to them as well, I think. Well, I think that's exactly what this play does. Right. And, and Diana Sun in some of her interviews has alluded to that. She sort of takes a little bit of umbrage in it being called like the gay play. She leaves sure. that very open. She says, I don't even, they, they might not have had language for what they are at that time. We see a very small snapshot of their lives. We don't know how this relationship progresses or if uh, their newly discovered blossoming orientation extends to others after the time. It's not really about putting labels. It's about a love story and a developing friendship. And uh, uh, as Adriana just said about Callie, uh, a broadening of your life to decide if you're willing to let others in and to what extent you're willing to advocate for others and um, put aside your selfishness or your fears and become a true companion. That's what I love about the story, though, that it's not like this overt thing. Well, I like you and you like me. Yeah. So let's go to the park and kiss. Yeah. no, that, It's so subtle and so elegantly uh, well-crafted in, in the language that it reminds me of like my first experience with my my college boy, my college boyfriend, yeah. uh, and you know we all have our firsts, and so it really took me back to my first, yeah. like my first friendship, my first boyfriend, my because that's that's how I navigate relationships and friendships sure. and loves, and so that's what I think is so beautiful about the storytelling. Mm-hmm. But I mean, let's but let's be fair. There is a. a an act of violence in the play that is a result of their relationship. Right, the and that wouldn't happen with the same-sex the couple at all. Exactly right. There yeah. is someone on the other side who looks at this and makes a judgment mm-hmm. about their relationship simply because of who they are, and it results in, a, in an act of, of tremendous violence, violence mm-hmm. that, that actually put, that, that stops a character from, from moving forward at all, puts them in a wheelchair, puts them in a hospital, puts them in a coma. Well, I, I guess... I think the original question was, like, what is the audience that this play would appeal to? And does it bridge the gap between perhaps the the queer community or even people who are against or have labeled the queer community as others? And I think the play definitely does that. I'm definitely um, inviting people in my own life that I know have strong biases against the queer community to come and see this play. And I'm not telling them what it's about. Oh, good. And I hope that they come and sit there and sit through all of it. And that might be their first exposure. Well, we lock the doors. They're not going anywhere. They can't get get out. But I mean, like you said, how do you, how do we bridge that gap? It's, it's when the othering stops. You know, it's funny. I, I, we have a, I, I don't think I'm going to throw anybody on the bus here because I'm not going to name names, but I did get some emails when we announced our last uh, mailing about this hmm. show. And, and we had a, one of our regular audience members ask me, is this the, is this the lesbian play, she said. Mm-hmm. And I was a little tentative in responding to that because I didn't know what, what I didn't know why she was asking. I didn't mm-hmm. know if it was, it was pro or mm-hmm. anti, right? Mm-hmm. But come to find out, she wants to bring a niece who is going through some uh, questioning uh, uh, of her own identity, and she wants to bring her as a yeah. way to start a conversation with her about about uh, uh, her situation and about her identity and about her future and about who she is. Um, yeah, so that, you that's, think that's sort a good of idea? A, yes, Should I that's write her back of, and tell her to come? Yes, I think that's exactly what I was going to say. I've got these facets of my life, uh, of people in my life that they're, what is that, Gantt chart or a... Uh, Overlapping, what's those Venn circles? Diagram? There we go. Venn diagram. They don't usually inter- interact with each other. And yeah. if they do, sexuality is not discussed. Or if it is discussed, it's in very polarized um, labeling terms. And in my own life, I'm trying to invite in all those aspects of the Venn diagram <laughs> into the same space so that the story can become the point of discussion instead of 
uh, pointing at individual people's lives, right? if that makes sense. So yes, I'm inviting people from my high demand religion side of my life. Right. And then I'm also inviting a lot of people I know from the queer community within that high demand religion that aren't quite open yet, because it feels very much like that, their story, including my own uh, queer child. Yeah. I, I really want him to come and bring all of his friends that are ex- exploring those binaries. And then, yes, of course, the theatrical, you know, all the people that love the script for what it has meant to them and maybe Adriana can speak a little bit to that because I was really affected by uh, her description of when she first saw and read this play and how it became uh, something really special to you in seeing. Yeah. I haven't heard that story. Is that something you, you wouldn't mind sharing? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's just that my, when I was in college, my, my college pr- produced it and, um, and it was at a time where like, um, so I'm, I'm queer. Um, uh, it was at a time in, in my life where like I was really confused about my sexuality and like really um, in a dark place because like my family was just like very, very not accepting. And um, uh, and so to see that representation on stage at such a young age was just like really important to me and like really just like I felt like I belonged somewhere because like I was able to see that I mean the violence in the play is definitely sad but um but was was um but putting that aside just like seeing two women starting to um figure out their feelings for each other like I definitely like that was something that I was like oh my god like that's my life like, that's what I experienced when I was 17. And I was like trying to figure out like, oh, my God, do I like this person? <gasps> she likes me, too. Oh, my God, we're going to kiss. <gasps> oh, my God. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah. And, and it was so, yeah. So it was it was just so special to be able to see that on stage, like me being an actor and like seeing characters, you know. Did it still did it yeah. still feel rare at that point? Did it feel like it was, that was a rare thing back when you were in school? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because, um, yes, because that, that was a long time ago. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Um, yes, I do feel that was rare. But, yeah, though though my school pushed the envelope a little bit. So, like, like it wasn't rare in our department, but, um, but, but it was rare to see, like, when, like, musical theater and, like, all these other kind, like, Shakespeare and, like, that was, like, the thing. But then to see, though, like, uh, questioning or like they don't label themselves but like you know these women that are starting to fall in love with each other like to see those as the main characters I I hadn't really seen that before and even in rehearsal Adriana will say oh that that reminds me of this moment it's just like crystallized in my mind where I remember this character doing this gesture or can can, can we fit that in or and I, I love that because that just it some, something about how many times did you see that production once? Oh, just just once, just once, just and yet once. there's like and this little yeah. pocket of yeah. precious memory that is visually so viscerally <laughs> ingrained in Adriana from that one production, and I hope that some something that we do might have that similar effect on somebody else that finally sees themselves their their journey. Um, even though it's a you know this is what you said. 15 years ago or 
10 years when, ago. When I saw it? Yeah. <laughs> I, okay, I won't, uh, I won't out you. <laughs> longer than that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I, I teach a women's playwrights class, and it was, I didn't discover this play on my own. It was the, the females in my class from the LGBTQ uh, plus community who told me about the play and begged me to read it. Mm. And then since we've... Uh, um, announced that we were doing it in my season, many of those students, my past students from previous semesters, have reached out and thanked me uh, for putting it in the season because they're feeling that sort of representation. And it's important for them, you know, back then, 10 years ago, five years ago, now to keep seeing those stories being told on stage in a peaceful way, right? We all go into a room and the lights go down and then this beautiful, elegant, romantic story comes up and we're considering it in a peaceful way, no bombs, right? No protests, just peacefully considering the story. Well, mm -hmm. and, that, and that's my question too, I guess to, to Gabby and Kim and well, to all three of you, is that, what what is your approach? Because Kim, you said you were really looking forward to maybe um, not necessarily changing minds, but giving people a jumping off point to start a conversation or to feeling that they can identify with, with the situations in, in, in the play. Are you, yeah. are you, so you feel like there is a universality definitely in the show. Is it a, a, a journey of romantic discovery or is it a tale of forbidden romance? And are those labels even really useful in talking about the play? I think they're useful to the extent that they're useful to the actors. They're not too useful to me, I guess, as a director. I just want to see humanity up there in its specificity and nuance. And um, I trust that the playwright has put everything in there that will tell um, the heart, like the didactic part of the moral message is already in the text. And so my job as a, as a director and our actor's job as actors is to um, clothe the, the, the text in humanity. Um, I, who is it? Tolstoy. I want maybe Stan. I think it was Tolstoy speaking to Stanislavski at the opening of the Moscow Art School way back when. He was talking about the two different kinds of theater, and that one was to was pageantry, and when you get done, everyone stands up on their feet and they clap, and ooh, those bright lights, those costumes. Oh, it was so funny. And then you just sort of put it in your back pocket. Everyone laughs, goes back home, and there it goes. You know. And then he said that, but. At the time, he wanted to create a different kind of training program that served a different kind of text, which truly would hold the mirror up to normal lives. And he said that was going to require a different kind of training. But the reason he uh, wanted to do it is that the theater can become a more effective pulpit than uh, a political pulpit or religious pulpit, anything, because the people who come into the theater are expecting to only be entertained. And then our job <laughs> is to surreptitiously have them end up re-examining their own lives and their own choices and their own biases and ultimately what changes they want to make in their lives so that they avoid uh, the choices and the consequences of, that the people have made on stage. And he said that that's the kind of theater he wanted to go to, where the lights come down and people aren't instantaneously jumping to their feet and clapping in applause. Instead, they've forgotten that they were watching a play because the artistry is such that you feel like somebody's filmed a documentary of your own living room and you feel almost transgressive in, in watching the intimacy that is shared with you on a stage and everyone is just sitting in silence thinking about, oh, I need to call my mom, you know, or 
um, or my daughter needs to come see this, or I better text somebody and apologize. And so I, I've been to very few plays where I've felt that like as a collective thing, but I feel like this is one of them. The, the themes are timeless. They're new as they happen to you or they happen to people that you care deeply about. And once that happens, there is no othering. You can't say it's a gay play. It's about lesbians. It's about a fellow human going through the same things as you. If, if it makes you more comfortable to put a label on it or if the person going through it feels more secure in their life's decisions by claiming a label, then we we can respect that. But it's just a fellow human navigating universal experiences. Yeah, and and there, that's what we respond to. And there would be people who would say that that's not very efficient or, or practical, but art has been doing that forever. In fact, I don't, well, I don't <laughs> think specifically about these, some of these themes, I don't know that we would have marriage equality in the United States without Will and Grace yeah, and Ellen yeah. and the popularity of those True. shows and those those characters. But it started back in the 80s, right, with, with uh, Tort Song Trilogy and which led to uh, well, a number of shows and Angels in America. There are gay characters in Shakespeare. There are gay oh. characters all throughout Ibsen and Chekhov. It's just it, uh, it, the, the code is deeper embedded. Right. But it's not like the queer community emerged in the 1980s. Oh, no, I don't think know? so. I'm just talking but... about the power of art <laughs> to change public perception. Well, so and, to, and acceptance and to bring in acceptance. Well, I, I don't know that Shakespeare was I think he did. did. I he? think he did because he wrote characters in that way that the queer community at his time would have recognized. Huh. Just because we don't recognize it now doesn't mean that those productions weren't any more taboo um, in what they were discussing in terms of especially sex, sexual orientation, addiction, uh, domestic abuse than any than they are now. They're just they're in, they're written in a different language, so you have to dig deeper to to find those things. But they were shocking to their public audience then, just the same way they. Well, and to be fair, they're now. they're cleaner characters now too. They're not yes. just clowns or buffoons or folks to be ridiculed for their peculiarities. Um, and, and I, I take mm -hmm. your point, but I think that I think that in in really fleshing out these characters, as Diana's son has done, as Harvey Fierstein did, as uh, uh, Tony Kushner did, mm -hmm. um, I think that's really a helpful way. And 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 all the writers of Will and Grace, I go back to Will and Grace, and, <laughs> yeah. and those characters really creating um, a love for a a love for people who happened to be. Gay. Mm -hmm. I think it was. They weren't connected in in a, a way that I love them because they're gay, or they these are characters who exist only for these attributes. Does that make sense? It does not make sense. It makes sense, but I disagree on many points. Don't tell me. <laughs> no, tell me. Well, I don't know. I'm. I, I feel strange because I'm not a member of the queer community myself, other yeah, I mean, than as, a, so as I... an ally. So I don't want to claim anybody else's per perspective. But in my mind, I love those characters precisely because they were gay. They or they were flamboyantly claiming their their expression of of orientation in a way that was. Uh, thrilling and courageous, and I didn't know any of my gay peers in high school in the 1990s who were even willing to come out to their families or dress that way or allow their vocal patterns outside of their small circle of friends um, to reflect uh, their queerness, whatever that means. And so I'd see these characters on Will and Grace and I just think, ah, I wish my friends that are that around me could be that that open, that joyful, that funny, that fully expressive of who they really are and be applauded for it, not punished for it. Yeah. Um, 
so I love those characters precisely because their orientation and their sexuality were so, um, were such a pivotal, like Will and Grace, it, it wasn't pitched as, it wasn't, what is it? Two guys and a baby or whatever, like it, or three's company. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Sure. It was, it was gay characters with a, a female best friend. And if it had been two straight guys and a female best friend, you wouldn't have any of the same plot complications, uh, complications of relationship and it wouldn't have drawn it was it wasn't written for the same what's that demographic well that's so that leads me to the question is are these do these two characters in this play have to be two women could this could this story be told as a male female couple mm, the relationship part could you could do every you could do every odd number scene. <laughs> Does that make sense? But who's yeah. going to beat up a, a yeah, male and I, a female yeah. for a yeah, simple, tender expression of love in a park? And that, say they want to watch. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> after the incident, then no. Mm -hmm. uh, but leading up to the incident, yes. So what's coming up at a public fit? Well, we've been talking about Diana Sun's Stop Kiss. You can see that just one night on March 25th at the Clark County Library. And we'll conclude the readings this year with Will Arbery's Heroes of the Fourth Turning on June 24th at 7 and the 25th at 2 in the afternoon. As always, admission to the readings is free of charge, but we still recommend arriving a bit early to the library just to take advantage of the best uh, seating. Our final main stage show this year, Things I Know to Be True by Andrew Bovell opens April 1st and runs through April 25th back at the usual place. For more information and specific showtimes or to purchase tickets for that one, please visit us online at apublicfit.org. Things are just barely kind of almost beginning to start to sort of feel normal again. And I hope you'll come out and share these stories with us. And again, thank you so much for your continued support. about what you said about loving these characters because of their orientation. And it makes me wonder, because I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but it seems to me that we're seeing a degradation in acceptance in some ways. I mean, Florida now is debating the don't, not debating, it's passed and gone to be signed, the don't say gay bill, as it's, as it's been called. We're seeing a lot of legislation in not just red states, across the country that are specifically targeting this community, the LGBT community. And I, I don't yeah. understand that. I don't know why that's, that's happening. Uh, can somebody tell me? Adriana, you've outed. You've, I can't speak for all of the queers. No, no, you, I don't mean to do that. I don't mean to put you and say, you speak for all of the queer nation. Please be their spokesperson. No, I don't mean to do I that. I don't understand either. It's totally messed up. I, a Christian right, Trump era people. I, um, I don't know. The fear. Uh, of what? What are? What's the fear of? What? I think I. I don't think I. I don't accept it, but I do understand it. Like looking at it from a sense of sociology or anthropology, it's it's not surprising to me at all. It's completely predictable. It's um, the same animosity presented against people of color. I mean, if you look at who was a teenager in 1965, those people were only two and a half generations away from that. So if you think, if you lived in a small town, and if most of who you are was formed before the age of seven, let's say, 
your view of the world. That's what psychologists say, that you pretty much are who you are by the age of five, six, seven. And that's formed by the people closest to you, your parents, your aunties, your uncles, your grandparents. And if what you inhale is a hatred and a fear of the other, and if your power comes from being superior and right and white and straight, um, until you're exposed to other ways of thinking, I don't know how you even know that another planet exists on the same planet. It's uh, We're living in different pockets of completely different um, definitions of what it means to be American. Well, I wonder, too, if there isn't some just instinctive reaction to the gains that are that have been made, that there, oh, is, yeah. a, there is a threat to, you know, that, that – uh, straight white culture feeling that at some point they are going to enter into the, into the minority and damn it, we've well, seen they how know minorities they are. are treated. They know they are. And that, that again, all started, I think with the civil, well, started back with that before the great migration, but that was the great political tool was saying, instead of uniting his class of under, of deprived people, marginalized voices against the 1% to say, ah, ha, ha, ha. Uh, yes, you might be as poor as the person next to you, but at least you're white, you know, or at least you're straight. So claim on that and dig into that. And meanwhile, the people who have the money continue to have the money and whatever. That, that's a whole nother political mm-hmm. class. But I, I just was struck uh, during the elections when they would go down south or at these huge um, you know, sites of Trump supporters, for example, and I'd see inter- intergenerational voters together. That's when it was really scary to me. You'd see like a, a three generations of voters and they'd all be spewing the same filth. Mm-hmm. I'll just call it filth because mm-hmm. I think it's disgusting. Well, that surprised the me too because they, I, well, I always felt like that, that, that way of thinking was going to die off. But how, how does it die off when the views continue and the, and the discussions are sheltered? Yeah. It's not until you get outside of that bubble or you form deep friendships that are based on respect and serving one another and advocating for and defending one another with somebody that is of that previous persecuted class that then you, you, you no longer can call them the other. They are as human as you and as deserving as you. And then once that thought process has changed, you can't go back to your narrow view. What I think is interesting, too, is that um, as to why maybe we think a little bit differently than um, people that are interested in, in being more violent in their thinking mm-hmm. is we are trained, if you're in the theater f- from a very young age, to consider these pockets of stories, mm-hmm. right? And so every time we examine a story, we go, oh, wow, there's this amazing culture in this story. I want to learn about these people. I want to understand these people. I want to I want to go meet these people, right? And then we just keep examining story after story after story, and it broadens our view. It makes us more empathetic, more accepting. Mm-hmm. But there's a whole culture of people who are trained not to think in that way, and they get stuck mm-hmm. in a groove, right? And then that groove makes them feel very sick. Right. And so uh, because of their thinking and they want to maintain their thinking, anything outside of that groove, outside of that pathway, they attack, they put down, they destroy. Right. And they say that it's not good or it's not right or it's not just. And so I think that's where that's where the divide comes. Kim brought up Kim brought up Mm -hmm. the um, the just the age range of some of these divergent views. 
And much as I've made Adriana the spokesperson for all things queer, I'm going to make you, Gabby, the spokesperson for all things young. You are far and away the youngest person at this table. Well, it's the youngest one in this room, I have to say. And I wonder what your your perspective is, just Mm -hmm. as a young person, among your peers and among Mm -hmm. that vast community of, of young folk mm-hmm. uh, because I really did. I felt like, you know, some of those attitudes were going to die off as, as we grew older and, and, and yeah. uh, um, you know, drop, literally drop dead. Yeah. Um, but I see that, that, that that's not really happening. And even when we see the, the, the great strides and arguments that are being made for the, the trans movement and the understanding of, of uh, gender diversity, I still see a violent reaction from a, a lot of young folk as well. Is there, what, what, where is that coming from? Again, this is Gabby speaking on behalf of all people yes. under the age of 25. Yes, yes, yes. And also just, I guess, guessing, because I, I feel like for my immediate bubble, right, I've always lived in a very... Uh, pro LGBTQ world and I've been in a theater world my whole life so I observe it from an outsider as an outsider right and I think a lot of it is just a byproduct of this generational view and it is a lot of you know my grandparents feel this way as a byproduct my parents feel that way and as a byproduct since it's the only thing I've ever known that's what I'm gonna get and you know you hop on social media and if you already have views one way I mean social media is engineered so that way your point of view is the supported point of view so if you are already in this mindset that lgbtq is bad and you know i this is is something that isn't good all you're going to get is news articles supporting you all you're going to get is advertisements supporting you all you're going to have on facebook is the same like bubble of friends and it goes both ways right because i go on my social media and it's all pro lgbtq and everybody on my social media page is the same exact way but that is the other side as well, is that their thoughts are being reinforced and almost encouraged because it's all they've ever known. Are these discussions that you guys have in, in rehearsal? I know Kim is, is very energetic about her, her views here. I know Adriana is very energetic about her perspectives. Are, are these discussions that you guys have in rehearsal or are they ancillary to the to the point of bringing out a, a strong romantic story, a good story, well told, well acted? Uh, how how I guess the question is how important are these discussions to making sure that the the story is well told and that the romance is detailed and uh, um, executed in in um, just the right way? We go off track <laughs> lots, and so just every once in a while, one of us will just let me say, "No, squirrels back in the cage," because <laughs> we're just sort of like ADHD, and the conversations do all filled uh, intermingled. So we know we've got to you know, get through this process and have a product that we're proud of. But we do have lots of these side conversations precisely because you said we're all very emphatic, uh, passionate people with live experiences that actually really contribute to the lives of these characters. So, for example, not only is Adriana our our valued queer community <laughs> um, uh, cast member, but she's also the New York expert. She lived in all these places. She's been to all these restaurants. So um, frequently we, we we ask our New York expert, you know, what what is this and what does this mean? And is it important? And why did the playwright put it in it? And how do we uh, personify that or physicalize that? Or uh, what's the point of view of the character for using that in this thing? So uh I'd say those side conversations are important to keep us energized, maybe as artists to remember like the ultimate reason we're doing things. Um, 
I don't know that they have a lot to do with the clarity of storytelling, but they have a lot to do with uh, putting this much energy into a free staged reading on one night. Yeah, well, it, well, it doesn't. I'm, I'm not suggesting that you, you guys know? have an agenda coming into this because it sounds like it sounds like the story that you you love the story, you love the characters, yeah, and you love the play, and that that's your agenda is to put on a good story. That's not the. I wasn't making an accusation. Oh, I didn't take it as an accusation, yeah. but. What do you guys think? I mean, it's it, working on the play has brought up a lot of like personal feelings and personal experiences. Well, I don't know if I could ask. I don't know if I could ask about that. I was curious because we know yeah. each other in passing, Adriana, not very well, but we know each other, and I know you mm -hmm. as a very sensitive, thoughtful, introspective woman. And I, I was going to ask about how this play might have been personally affecting you emotionally, but I didn't know if I could go there. Can I go there? I mean. I you don't just know went why. there. I guess I did. <laughs> like, well, so tell me about I mean, it. What's... I don't know why not. Um, I, I, I mean, like it's 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 bringing up like a, a lot about. I mean, my my sexuality about like feeling like feelings of love again. Um, remembering New York and like who I was when when I was there. I mean, just like a lot of personal stuff. It's like I don't know if that has if if that helps the play at all. It's just it's just like it's bringing. It's sparking things in me. Um, yeah. Like it's making me re remember how I felt when I was in New York or like what what I did or like how I felt when I was with a person or like those early feelings. And um, yeah, I mean, like those kinds of things are. Yeah. And then like we sometimes bring up, I don't know, personal stuff comes into the room but not necessarily like political I mean like maybe it's like colored with a little bit of po political stuff but like is that your normal is that your normal approach as a performer though to personalize that deeply and to examine those issues uh, the way they affect you as an individual so so clearly I don't know well you're a performance artist and you do a lot of work that's yeah. that is um I won't say coded but it's very it's it's you, you do have an agenda in some of your performance pieces, I think. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I I think do. that's fair to say. And I, and you have there has to be some anchor that you tie yourself to to make those uh, those statements as clear as you do. And I wonder how it's different between the performance art and this type of of acting because they're certainly different. They're different ways of performing. Mm. Yeah, I guess the choice of language is di well. I mean, like this is already scripted. Um, yeah, and like when I do uh, my performance art. It's very like image visual based, and then yeah. Like, so last time I saw you wearing an enormous sombrero and a mustache the size of my head. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, uh huh, yeah. And and there's like you know like some subversive kind of you know stuff that I'm talking about when I wear that. Um, so like I guess like the language is like more visual. I, yeah, that's that's a good question. I, like I don't exactly know how to answer that at the moment, but but um. Well, tell me how you're approaching this this character. Then, how how often do you delve into those uh, those personal memories? I, I hear you guys saying you have conversations about them, mm -hmm. but do you take what do you do when you have those conversations? What do you draw from them in order to to propel Callie forward? Um, I guess they're like I don't know, like accessing some kind of emotion, accessing um, some kind of connection, so that it just becomes like it comes from like an authentic place yeah um that like i yeah like maybe there's like a little bit of substitution in there um uh um 
yeah, um, yeah. No, I, I I I can understand how hard it is to talk about the personal approach to to yeah. acting. Acting is weird. It's just acting everyone has different. Yeah, it is yeah. weird. Yeah. Gabby's nodding like crazy. Gabby's <laughs> word actors are weird. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I and, and I think this one just feels like way more personal to me because like it's like it it deals with like a woman falling in love with a woman and that's really personal to me. Yeah. And um and like especially like those feelings of like um discovering those those feelings for the first time. Like that that is just really sweet and tender to me because it like it does make me think of my 17 year old self like so in that way like it's 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 kind of unlocking and opening up who I was before you know like yeah. and like maybe have like forgotten that part of myself like it's very sweet and very tender um so that's kind of what's happening with this character which is kind of different from like other stuff that I've done yeah um I I don't know if you'll be able to see that on stage but as far as like psychologically it's affecting me differently. you're telling me the theater del arte was not sensitive and <laughs> delicate and oh no, it, no I, it was oh god it was so hard. i think of del arte theater with the big masks and the giant buffoonish it's more than that joke. of course it is i know i was making a bad <laughs> joke as, as usual so you're making an argument for inclusion the idea that, that these topics and the inclusion of these sorts of characters are, are well we've been talking about that all for the last hour or so is that important is is um not just the inclusion of characters, but the inclusion of performers, yourself as a as a representative for every queer person in the history of the world. Um, is is that inclusion important as well? Is it important that 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 both of these characters not be played by heterosexual women? Um Yeah, I don't I It don't was know. to me, or yeah. I didn't really want to do it. Yeah. Um well, I remember we talked about that before yeah. we started auditions. And in fact, I guess Given my druthers, I think it should prob it probably should be directed also by a member of the queer community. I won't I, tell if you won't. <laughs> I won't tell. But no, I was really r sort of reticent because this is the time in history when uh, people can finally claim their own stories and the the nuance, the the life experience, the expertise that come from that being a part of your DNA or your lived background gives you more ownership of that material than anybody who's not a part of that community has. And so if I, if I was going to direct this play without a member of the queer community in it, uh, it, that would have just not felt respectful. Can I, to I'm going to ask a difficult question then, because this is as a producer, there was a time when we were asking about someone's sexuality was verboten. You could not right. because you'd be accused of discrimination. And you, still you cannot can't. possibly. You can't. You no. So how do we, how do we honor that choice? How do we make it sure that we include uh, performers and people of of all persuasions without coming out and putting on the audition form? Are you a member of the LGBT community? Because well, we can't. We're we're not meant to do that. We can be sued. It, you it's, can't it's, ask. It's a delicate, and you can't require. But I think we put a little clause, something like. Uh, you can volunteer. You can volunteer. And also Diana Son in her uh, introduction, she specifically says that she wants the casting to reflect the ethnic diversity of New York City. And right. so I think we borrowed something from that, like saying our desire is to reflect the ethnic and the sexual diversity of New York City as intended by the playwright. If you're comfortable, please let us know why this story is important to you. And then we had some really interesting little um, 
exposures of personal reasons to do this, either because they are members of the queer community or had um, had violence, sexual violence perpetrated on them specifically, or uh, children or extended friends and family who had gone through similar experiences. And um, not, I mean, you always say talent being equal, but first of all, talent isn't equal. But when I hear those stories in the room, I immediately want to work with those people because this story it will be a personal extension of them. And if we're going to devote, oh gosh, how many hours? We're probably going on a, at least 100. And by the time we're done, 20 hours a week for six weeks, we'll be up to like 140, 150 you hours of our lives. You guys have been rehearsing lives. for six weeks? We will be by the end. What have we done with these stage readings, Emery? Six <laughs> weeks of rehearsal. Five hours. Five weeks? Okay. But still, that's a big chunk of your life. That is and a huge so chunk of time. It's sort of our humanitarian uh, donation to the artistic community. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So then it better be for a reason. Yeah. You better have something other than I've just got to scratch my acting itch. I, I think there needs to be a reason underneath that you feel a reason to do this script, to have these characters and, and these situations teach you something because you will be a changed person after all this time spent inside the minds and the words of, of these people. And I know I've changed and it's been a really important How have thing. you changed? Oh, well, I don't know how personal I want to get, but one of my children is in the middle of uh, their transitioning process. Yeah. And very protective of their own experience. And so as a mother, I'm really on the outside that they're very private with their um, sexual orientation and their gender identity uh, exploration. They don't want their mom to really be a part of it. And so this is a way I feel like I can stay involved in the overall um affecting the world that they're navigating to be more protective and friendly and accepting of them. Do you yes. know, it's just sort of like people, that's why I say I want to invite members of my, like my religious community to come and see that because my own child uh, won't attend there because they feel the damage is done on a daily basis there. They feel like every time they enter the space, religious trauma happens to them because yeah. of their, their queer and their trans identity. And I can't I direct that head on. I don't have the, emotional energy, nor do I want to offend, <laughs> you know, all these people that are inadvertently causing harm to my child, but I can devote time to this play and portray two wonderful characters that are supposedly fictional, you know, from the queer community and support their journey of love. And something about that, when they meet my child face to face, I hope will have changed them so that they can accept my child differently. You know, we, well, we call, we call this podcast behind the buzz because of the buzz that we do after all of our readings. Are you looking forward to the the buzz for yeah. this show or are you dreading it? No, I love the, the whole, I think the whole purpose of theater is to provoke conversation yeah. and personal so examination. Yeah. So, uh, I live for those conversations. That's my favorite thing. So, but my child that I've wanted to see this and have involved in this production, they've been so busy with their own life. They haven't even read the script. They <laughs> haven't come to a rehearsal. So if I can get them there on the 25th, this will be their first exposure. And I hope it is sort of a little gift of love saying, yeah. you can't keep me on the outside. I'm on the inside. And I have been advocating for you so hard for longer than you've even realized where your inclinations lie. Um, and so maybe in, in retrospect, they'll see uh, that I was fighting for them in, in the ways I know, knew how with the tools that I have at my disposal. Well, it sounds like you've 
uh, it sounds like you've really thought about it, and I'm really looking forward to mm-hmm. this reading. I'm, and also, um, just candidly, I love uh, Adriana. And I was really excited that she auditioned and that she was willing to be a part of the experience. Um, Adriana met and I met each other through this uh, women's artist organization called Statera to empower the voices of women. And we were paired together as a mentor mentee during COVID. And so our first couple conversations were just by phone. Like, who are you? (laughs) Uh, Like literally, we're just like, who are you? Okay. We'll talk 20 minutes every two weeks and sort of get to know each other. And, um, I felt an instant bond to Adriana because we were both sort of in love with the same play at the same time that I thought nobody else had heard of, Ghosts of Lote Bravo. Oh, yeah. I've loved that since its first reading that I saw at the Kennedy Center when it was like it was almost like its second public reading. Were you, were you in town when Adriana was no, 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 I missed it. But then when I heard that Adriana had loved it and that she had already put on a production, I was already like, oh, if anybody loves that script, like I love that script and they're actually Latinx and can make it happen, I need to meet this woman. It was a remarkable reading. It was yeah. it was a very powerful evening. I believe it because everything Adriana does is touched with personal passion and introspection and a huge giving of a part of her heart. Well, I, I got to say too, Kim, I've seen a lot of actors sort of come into Vegas and and take us by storm for a couple of months. I've never seen anybody hit the ground running sort of the way you have and, and the way you've uh, approached and uh, embraced and supported every theater in town and, and reached oh, out to you. be a part of the community. I've, I've never seen the sort of energy that's exploded into to Vegas the way that you have. <laughs> no, really. And and I know that you have, what, 14, 15 children? And like two or three sometimes. husbands. I mean, you're really, really, Ooh, I wish. really busy. I that part of the combination I can handle. Just as we talk, I mean, just in talking about all the things that you do and keeping your family obligations together as well. It's, I'm flabbergasted when you told me that uh, just now now that there's, you know, well over 100 hours of rehearsal into this, I can't imagine where you find the time. Mm-hmm. But we're very glad that you did. And I. But it feels I, like a gift to ourselves, or it feels like a gift to me to actually be able to do this. I think one of the first days I was like, you guys, we get to tell this story with somebody else financing it and somebody else <laughs> making it happen. It's like, I mean, I would do it just because just I love the story and the passion and to work with each one of you. But somebody else is putting the money behind it. So let's maximize it and make sure that we're, you know, we do something that we're proud of and just that think of it as, as a the Christmas set design. gift. Okay. <laughs> set design's half my house. <laughs> that <laughs> is just true, too. over yesterday. I think, well, I, unless somebody, unless oh, I've forgotten you know, let something. Let me finish yeah. up my thoughts. So yeah. uh, you were talking about, like, the, the why, why do stuff. So as soon as I knew that Adriana wanted was interested in being a part of this process, I was very interested in having her be a part of the process. And Adriana, you just tell me to shut up if you want to, but Adriana was like, but it's a big part and I haven't done straight acting in a long time and that would be really scary. And so I was like, well, you, you'll bring your expertise to it and I'll bring some other expertise to it. So tell me what you're worried about and we'll just review We'll do text analysis sessions. We'll do character analysis sessions. We'll do whatever you need to do so that you feel confident portraying this role with like chutzpah, just just grabbing it. And um, it's it's interesting to hear Adriana say that um, that you feel the greatest thing is that your heart has sort of been opened and that you've become more tender. I do see that, but I also see some ferocity. that I knew existed in Adriana, but that I don't know if Adriana knew existed in Adriana, or at least I hadn't seen it on stage to that degree. And when I see Callie as a character, which is Adriana as a human, go for what they want in defense of somebody that they love and care about, uh, I get really excited because I do think that as actors, one of our greatest things is 
we bring our whole selves to the theater and the theater brings its whole selves to us and we both change. And I think this part, I have seen it changed. I have seen it change Adriana. And that is um, um, reward yeah. in itself for me to see uh, you sort of step into your own empowerment as an artist and also as a, a queer person, like saying, this is who I am. And I there's nothing wrong with feeling this way. I think it was really empowering and and, and uh, really farsighted of you to include the Del Arte masks in the production as well. I think that was very smart to, <laughs> to put them all in in the character masks from the Del Arte. Yes, tree. that yes. was that was Maybe smart. on the main stage. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I can't let a sentimental moment hang like that. <laughs> uh, we've we've spent a, lot, a great deal of time talking. Thank you guys so much for coming out and talking about Stop Kiss. I think that's going to wrap up this episode of of Behind the Buzz. This is uh, APF's continuing conversation about the stuff we do. Uh, this was season two, episode five. And again, I want to thank Kimberly Mallon, Adriana Chavez, and, and Gabby Silveroli for, for really, guys, digging in uh, with us today about Diana's son's Stop Kiss. You out there, if you think these uh, are conversations worth having, I hope you'll take a moment to give us a quick review. Um, as many stars as your app and your conscience will allow. Your feedback not only allows us to get uh, better with each and every conversation, it also leads other listeners across the interwebs to come join us at these conversations. Uh, you can also contact us directly through the old email by writing us at behindthebuzz at apublicfit.org. We read each and every note, scribe, jot, and tittle, and, and we'd love to hear from you uh, since, you know, honestly, talking about the work is one of our favorite things to do. Uh, Behind the Buzz is a product of a public fit theater company. It is mixed and edited by Adam Paul and is produced in association with Giant Leap Industries, Adam Paul Director slash Mysterious Stranger. A production of Giant Leap Industries.